Well, morning, guys. It's nice to see you. Um, when Shane said that we've been away for a while uh, and that we're back, you all went, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like <laughs> you, weren't, you weren't sad that we were gone, but it is good to be back from our side, and it is good to see you today. Um, and yeah, we really did miss you guys, so it's good to see your faces, and um, I guess to start to say hello and touch base again. I thought maybe I'd just mention two highlights from our trip while we were away. Um, we were with our friends, Restored Church, I'm sure many of you guys know. You would know Andy Rogers and Brad Sarian, who've both been out here, and hopefully we'll be back again next year. But it was really great just to be there for the celebration of Restored's five-year anniversary as a church. Got to preach at their kind of Sunday gathering for that, which was so cool. And in the evening, they had like a bit of a party, Sunday evening party. I don't think would really work for us, but they worked really, really well, and they had a great venue, and they had people from the four churches they've planted in those five years come together and say toasts or speeches celebrating what God has done, and then they ate some food, and they danced some um, dance moves uh, to celebrate kind of the years and God's faithfulness, and it was really just a beautiful moment seeing the grace of God on a community of people. I think maybe one of the other highlights for us was we got to go and spend some time with Tim Mackey and the guys from the Bible Project, and if you haven't checked out that website, I really want to encourage you to do that. I think it's thebibleproject.com, and just check out some of the resources they've got online to understand the Bible more. Tim Mackey did some lecturing with us, and we did some Q&A with him, and he honestly is just such a love for the Bible. People were saying to him, well, how do we get to know it? He said, just read it. Just just read it. Read it. Read it more. Read it. And you'll let the scriptures get into your heart. And we went into their offices and we just got to see some of what they were working on, which included a bit of a VR virtual reality thing of kind of going into the tabernacle and getting an idea of kind of the Old Testament place where God was worshipped and what happened inside of that space. So they're constantly pioneering in terms of videos and books and resources so that actually our world can understand what is going going on in the life of the scriptures better. So I really want to encourage you to check that out and their Read Scripture app, which I know a number of you in this church are using to read the Bible and understand the Bible a little bit better. But I'm excited to be back today to get into our new series, which is called Hidden Messages. And I think it's going to be a really fun one. I've kind of had this desire to do this series for about two years now. We're going to spend five weeks going through the five one-chapter books of the Bible. And I think often these books are overlooked probably because they're short, probably because they are the shortest books in the Bible. People skip over them or miss them. I've actually only heard one of these five ever being preached before after about almost 20 years in church. I heard one guy preach through the book of 2 John but the rest I've completely missed. So we're going to spend the next five weeks going through Obadiah, Philemon, 2 John, 3 John, and Jude. You're all looking at me with blank expressions. It's like, what are these books that you're talking about today? It's a good reason that we're doing this series. And maybe two reasons we wanted to do this Hidden Messages series. Firstly, it's for your own sake. Actually, one day at the end of time after this life is, life is wrapped up the way we know it, and we go into the new heavens and the new earth, and after we meet Jesus face to face and see guys like Abraham and Moses and other heroes from the Bible, how awkward would it be for you if you bump into Obadiah? <laughs> and he's like, I'm here, guys. <laughs> it's great to meet you, Gareth. How's it going, man? Yeah, yeah. Did you like my book? And you're scratching your head. Obadiah. Oh, your book. What was that book about again? It's in the Bible. Uh, yeah, no, of course, in the Bible. I know it. So we want to help you guys to avoid that kind of moment of embarrassment in the future. And also, I just think it's a cool kind of brag with some of your Christian friends. Yeah, our church just really doing a deep dive into the book of Obadiah at the moment, just plumbing the depths of the riches of that book. Uh, I think the second reason is Paul in Acts 20 verse 27 says that actually we want to be a church that lives and thinks and knows the full counsel of God. I think that would be so cool for us, you know, that we don't just go through like a cyclical 
um, root of the same topics over and over again throughout the year. But actually we're getting to understand the full counsel of God's word and know and understand and apply it to our lives for ourselves. I think the second reason I'm excited about this series is we're actually partnering with a church in Florida with this series. So I've got a friend named Rob Duford who I've mentioned here before. He leads a church called Orlando North Church over there. So he might pop up on the screen next week just to say hi. But the idea was that actually we wanted to partner with this series. So we're working together kind of on the content, working together on some of the media stuff and uh, some of what you will hear over the next few weeks. And he's been a friend that I've had for a while. We went to Latvia together and did some ministry together. We've ministered in their church. But actually probably the relationship is more through Shell and her mom, who's doing some ministry in Swaziland this weekend. Uh, they've known him for about 23 years. This is a long-term family relationship we've had with him and his church. And it's great just to be able to partner together with people around the world and to get a bit of a bigger picture of what God is doing everywhere. So today I'm kicking off this series with Obadiah. It's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It's a one chapter book, only 21 verses. And I wanted to ask, this is no shame, no embarrassment, but who in this room has read the book of Obadiah before? Could you raise your hands if that's you? Got one, two, three, maybe 10 out of the whole room. Now, secondly, can you raise your hand if you remember what Obadiah is about? No one, none of you. Okay, Josh is mouthing something, but I don't think you know. Do you know? He's a prophet and the big idea of the book? Okay, we'll get there in a sec. I've got to be honest, uh, coming towards this book, I felt exactly the same. I'd read it through a bunch of times, but if you're anything like me, kind of going through the minor prophets, they all kind of blur into one long lump, you know? You've got this idea that in the minor prophets, Israel is walking with God, Israel gets distracted from God, Israel drifts from God into rebellion, and God raises up a prophet, someone who's going to speak the truth to the nation and call them back to God, and the nation repents and starts to walk with God again, and then it cycles around again and again and again. Same story throughout all of those books. But the book of Obadiah is unique in a sense because it is a series of divine judgment poems. It's just the kind of thing you wanted to hear on a Sunday morning. It's this uh, real list, 21 verses of God speaking his judgment against the nation of Edom. And kind of hearing that this morning, you might think, what relevance does this have for my life here and now? What, what relevance do these ancient judgment poems in this ancient city or people of Edom have to do with my life here and now? And I think as we go through it together, you will see that actually God has a lot to say to us through all scripture. So if you can uh, open up or turn on your Bibles, we're going to turn to Obadiah. 1 verse 1. I know some of you might want to check the contents page first to find where that is. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can just follow along on the screen behind me, and we're going to read the first 14 verses together. Obadiah 1 verse 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Quite a serious bit of scripture so far. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. 
All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter." Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and shall be cut and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on that day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Reading through that, I'm sure what stood out to you guys is a lot of incredibly strong language, and probably a lot of the rest has just gone over our heads. You know, kind of as we read through that, I think I want to encourage us as a church, when we get to a passage of Scripture, which is more complicated and dense and meaty, that we don't just kind of glaze over and read through and just move on to the next thing. But sometimes what we need to do is we need to buy ourselves a study Bible or go to thebibleproject.com or get a commentary or just sit and read this through a few times and underline and highlight and pray it through and meditate on it and think it through and maybe discuss it with someone to understand what is actually going on in a passage like this. This is not a passage that's easily going to give you its meaning and what's going on, but the Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. And because of that, we're actually robbing ourselves if we don't come to grips with some of what is going on in these trickier passages of Scripture. Now, reading this passage in Obadiah, probably the first thing that should stand out to us is there's quite a serious tension going on between the nations of Israel and Edom. You can see that in kind of the conflict in the language which is used in this passage. But for a lot of us, we don't know the backstory. Why is there this tension? Why are they at odds with one another? And if you go back to Genesis 25 to 27, we get something of an idea. These two nations share the same grandparents, Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, the great hero of Scripture, like one of the all-time heroes of the Bible, is the grandfather of these two men, of Jacob and Esau. Now, you might have heard of them before. They're these rivaling twins who in the womb were kind of competing to see who would get out first. And Esau was the winner. He was the one who was born first. He was the one who got the birthright. He was the one who got the inheritance. But Jacob, if you remember anything about him, was a deceiver and a trickster. And Jacob made a way that he could steal away the birthright and the blessing and the inheritance from his brother to get it for himself. Now, when that happened, you can imagine there was a bit of frustration and tension between the brothers. Firstly, men are competitive, so neither of them would have enjoyed this at all. But then when Esau lost to his younger brother, he would have been absolutely devastated. And we see that from that point on, there's a separation between these two, and they are at odds. And what happens over time is that Jacob becomes the nation of Israel, and Esau becomes the nation of Edom, or the Edomites that we're reading about here in this passage today. Now, when we get to the book of 
Obadiah, there's been some water under the bridge, a few hundred years have passed, but a terrible thing has happened. The nation of Babylon is taking over the world. Their empire is increasing everywhere they go, and they've got into Israel, and they have destroyed Israel and taken it out. They've taken people captive and taken them back to Babylon. They've looted and plundered the cities, and they've killed many of the Israelites. But what is so terrible in the book of Obadiah is that the Edomites have hopped on the bandwagon. The Edomites have joined with the nation of Babylon to attack their relatives, their brothers, the nation of Israel. They've helped in the capture. They've helped in the killing. And then they have gone through the cities and they've taken all the wealth they could for themselves. That's the plot of what's going on in the book of Obadiah. Now, there's two halves to Obadiah. And here in what we've read so far, these first 14 verses, we just see that Obadiah is speaking along with a number of the other heroic Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Abos and Ezekiel prophesying against what Edom has done. They're prophesying judgment. They're prophesying God's wrath and God's punishment upon them, which is quite a serious thing to be going on. And they're prophesying this against the pride and the self-exaltation and the wickedness of this nation of Edom. If you read in verse 4, Obadiah writes, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. It's quite a crazy passage. We see this language constantly of their lofty dwelling, of them living in the stars, you know. And there's this reality that actually they physically lived in the hills or the mountains around that area. But beyond that, Obadiah and these prophets are trying to capture the idea that they were proud. They were full of pride and arrogance in their heart. And they looked down on the Israelites and other people in judgment. They judged these people. I'm sure many of us can feel the same. We have pride and arrogance in our hearts. We look down on all people or certain people and think that we are greater. But throughout Scripture, there is this idea that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And here God is talking about that very thing. He is going to bring Edom down and there will be destruction and judgment. But in verse 15, right in the middle of the book, there's this incredible change that comes about. It says, Therefore the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. And there's this really interesting shift that happens from a focus on Edom and their sin and their imperfections and their wickedness to the sin and pride of all nations. And probably something we miss there is that the name Edom and the name Adam are spelled exactly the same way in Hebrew. Very, very interesting thing. This nation of Edom represents the whole, na- or the whole of humanity. Actually, their sin represents our sin. What they have done wrong represents what we constantly do wrong in following God and living for Him. And here we see the rise and fall of Edom is actually a parable for all of us. A parable of how we constantly drift from God and His ways and do our own thing. For some of you, I think reading about the day of the Lord and this moment of judgment, you get really excited, you know. You've been wanting more judgment in the church. This is like the kind of thing you're craving and asking for more of. And maybe you're sitting here reading this or hearing this being read and spoken about, and you're thinking, God, I've actually got some people that I'd like you to add to your list. There's some people in my life who I'd love you to take down, some people I would love you to judge. And you're like, cool, okay, I'm marking the minor prophets for my reading this afternoon. This is my new devotional section because I want to see people get judged. 
And maybe this reminds you of some of the books you like to read or the movies you like to uh, go through where actually there are these themes of judgment and righteousness and actually God uh, or kind of the hero bringing order and right to the areas where there is wrong. People being paid back for the wrong that they have done. I just thought of maybe one of the movies that stood out to me. If you've watched the movie Taken, you know that scene where Liam Neeson, who's playing the role of Brian Mills, the ex-CIA agent, is on the phone to his daughter's kidnapper, the man who has taken her prisoner to sell her off. And he speaks to him, and he says, if you let my daughter go now, in this beautiful, gruff Irish accent, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. It's a beautiful scene. What a film. What a film. (laughs) But this is kind of what's going on in the book of Obadiah here. God is speaking these strong words to the nation of Edom in his even greater accent and even greater voice. And some of us find this so interesting. Wow, a God of judgment and justice. For others, I think you're probably sitting there a little bit shaken, you know. You think every week we come here and you guys preach about grace and love and mercy. You preach about the God who died on the cross for us. And now we're seeing a God here who is taking down a nation. Here we see a God who is pouring out wrath and condemnation and judgment upon this other nation. And that seems so crazy crazy to us in this moment. And I want to say, I think we need to wrestle with this idea a bit, because justice has become a buzzword in our culture. Justice is something that a lot of us like to talk about. You know, we want to see justice come in our country and our world. We want to see justice in the places of injustice, racial justice. We want to see ethnic justice, gender justice, economic justice. We want to see our world made right in the areas where it is wrong. Maybe you can think of some areas in our culture or society where there is this entrenched systemic injustice where constantly throughout time some people get an advantage in life and other people get a disadvantage in life. We want to see justice come. And I think uh, sociologists are calling us a justice generation at the moment. You can see that if you go on Facebook, on social media, there is this reality that people are constantly putting forward their causes, the thing they want you to get behind and invest into, because this is something that matters so much to us. And then on top of that, even now while we were away, on the plane that we were flying in, there was a little envelope in the seat in front of us saying, put any spare change you've got in this envelope so that we can give to the cause that we've got. Even companies, in a sense, are hopping on the justice bandwagon for their brand identity, for their own advertising to us. Justice has gone mainstream. Justice sells. But I think still when we get to the idea of God and justice, there's almost like a mistaste in our mouth. This just seems so strong, and we struggle with it. We live in a time now when probably a lot of people are losing interest in the church and Jesus. Many churches are shrinking and people are giving their lives to other things. So for us, probably in a sense, trying to sell Christianity and sell Jesus, we want to show you God's good side. You know, like a model going on a shoot. They want to show their good side so that they can make the ad look as good as possible. So we want to put forward God's good side of his grace and his mercy and his love. But we want to kind of hide away that other side, the reality of God's wrath and his judgment that God is a righteous judge who does what is right in our world. I think some of us have this thought in mind as we come to Obadiah, well, that's the Old Testament angry God. You know, that's kind of that God from back in the day, but God's changed a lot since then. God was going through like a moody teenage phase, but like since the cross, he seems to have mellowed out a whole lot, and he seems to be a God that we can really enjoy. He's kind of gone from this Old Testament ugly duckling to this New Testament beautiful swan. And that's how we think about God in some ways. And that's just so wrong, you know. That is not the idea of what's going on in Scripture at all. 
In fact, God has always been the same. God does not change. And he is a God of grace and mercy and love. And he is a God of justice and a God of judgment and a God of wrath. And I think as we look at all of this stuff, we should love that. We should love that grace and justice go together, that God's love and his judgment go together. Because if God is a loving and beautiful creator who made this world and made you and loves you and cares about you, he should be perturbed and angry when he sees us hurt. When he sees sin and evil and injustice going on in this world, he should be angry about it and he should do something about it too. If God doesn't do anything about it, if God doesn't care about it, then how can he care about the hurt and suffering and evil that we go through in the lives that we live? No, sin demands justice. Sin demands a response. And I think we know this instinctually. That's why we will watch a movie like Taken and we will be so thrilled when finally Liam Neeson catches that man and he slams the nails into his knees and he kills him because he deserved it all along. We wanted to see him getting taken out for the crime and sin that he was involved in. When it comes to us, we always want mercy and grace. When it comes to those who have wronged us, we want justice. We want them to pay for what they've done. I think maybe just as an aside, as we've like been looking at this nation of Edom and all that's been going on there and what God's doing through time, I know some of you in this room have gone through really tough moments, you know, where people have hurt you, where people have sinned against you, where people have treated you terribly, where you have experienced an injustice. And maybe you're sitting there as I speak about this at kind of like a cosmic level and you're thinking, well, what about me? How do I respond to what I've experienced? Paul the Apostle in Romans 12, verse 17 to 21, writes about this. And he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul writes about the things that we face in the life that we have, and he's honest. You will go through hurt. You will go through injustice. You will experience the cruelty and sin of people. How do you respond, though? And he says, never with vengeance. Vengeance isn't the way we should respond. He's calling us to a different way, the way of Jesus, which is a way of forgiveness, a way of grace, a way of reconciliation, and a way of living with trust and faith in God in the midst of a very, very broken world. Romans 12 tells us to live a very different way. It's not just speaking about the actions that we have, although it does describe those, but it actually gets behind the actions that we should take, and it speaks to our hearts. It speaks to our hearts about forgiving and about actually loving our enemies. And then it speaks to us in response to the way that we respond to these things in our hearts by calling us to love our enemies the way Jesus has loved us. It's an absolutely crazy picture that we would serve, lovingly serve those who actually hate us and hurt us and want the worst for us. But the thing is that Jesus has already demonstrated that for us. You know, When we were his enemies, when we rebelled against him, when we were disinterested in him, he served us lovingly on the cross, dying in our place, the worst kind of suffering and service that we can imagine. Jesus paid on the cross so that we could be made right with God. 
And there on the cross, he took the full weight of all of the injustice of the world upon himself so that we would no longer be enemies of God, separated from God, but that we could come into his kingdom as beloved children. It's an amazing thing what Jesus does. And he calls us and says to us, do not act as the impartial judge, knowing right from wrong, but actually can you live in this world trusting that God will do what is right? Can we trust that God will do what is right in the evil and injustice and wickedness of how people act, that, that we can live with confidence and faith that he will do the right thing? When someone is brought to justice, it means they have been held accountable for their actions. It means that there is a price to be paid for what they have done. And that's what's going on in the book of Obadiah. Edom has done something wrong, and now they're paying the price for what they should do. But what I love about this is that as in all of Scripture and the way that God acts, judgment is never his final word. Judgment is never his final word. And we see that as we carry on through the book of Obadiah. In verse 16, it says, For as you have drunk on my holy mountains, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never seen. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And those of the Shepelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in uh, Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Obadiah ends with this incredible hope for all people. It doesn't end with judgment. It doesn't end with suffering. It ends with a hope for those who would humble themselves and put their trust in God of salvation and entrance into a new kingdom. It's quite interesting. If you go back two books, to the book of Joel and the book of Amos, we see that these books speak about the day of the Lord, this day of judgment, this day of justice coming, and they speak about the response afterwards. In Joel, it ends saying that God would perform a new act of salvation in Jerusalem and that all who call upon the name of the Lord and humble themselves will be saved. And then in Amos, it ends saying that after the day of the Lord has judged Israel's sin, God would raise up the house of David, which is the line, the family that Jesus himself came from, and build a new kingdom for Israel that would include Edom, even Edom, this nation that we're seeing God's judgment against, and all the nations that call upon God's name. And I want to ask if you can see it, that the hidden message of Obadiah is actually the message of the Old Testament and the New Testament and all of Scripture. That we serve a God who lovingly pursues all people and calls them to himself. We serve and worship a God who cares about the most evil and wicked of people, those who have hurt you more than anyone else. And he is saying, come and follow me. Come and humble yourself. Come and repent. Come and turn. And I would give you a new life and a new hope inside of myself. We see in Obadiah this picture of a nation, an ancient nation, who is a picture of all of humanity, a a nation in their pride, a nation in their sin. And we have to realize that the whole book is about this nation, but that we are Edom. 
We are the same nation. We're a nation of pride. We're a people who sin. We're a people who treat others the wrong way. We've sinned against our brothers. We have killed and captured and looted, maybe not with our actions, but definitely in our hearts. We are Edom. And the reality is we have failed to be good brothers to many of the people in our lives. Maybe it's people in this room. Maybe it's people in your office or people in your family. But Jesus has been a really good brother to us. Even though we have sinned against him and against others, Jesus has been a brother who hasn't taken advantage of us or done what we deserve, but actually laid down his life on the cross in our place. He's been the ultimate and perfect brother to us that faced the ultimate day of the Lord where all of God's wrath and judgment was poured out on him so that we could live a new life free from that. So that we can come not as God's enemies, but as children into his kingdom and know him for the rest of time. Verse 21 says, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And that really is our hope, that in this world that is broken and imperfect that we live in, that God will one day make all things new. That as we see the evil and sin and injustice that is all around us in the news, in our lives, in our homes, that God will one day transform everything. He will judge what is evil and he will perfect our world and make it new. Can we stand together and respond to God? Sandra, can I ask you to come up and just share that word that you had before? I think I wanted to pray for us maybe for three things particularly. The first is that we would be forgiven and right with God. The second is that we could forgive others and actually that the kingdom of God would come in our cities and our hearts and our world. But while we were praying before the service, I just had this picture of some people in this room who are actually full of unforgiveness. I, I think there maybe are some people here today that you have been hurt by others and this unforgiveness has grown over time and layered in your hearts. And just as we prayed before, I had this picture of God almost scraping years and years of layers of sin out of our hearts so that we could be clean and that we could love again. And Sandra also had a similar word, which I wanted to ask you to come up and share and then pray for us for. Um, just while we were praying, I, I don't know if you've ever done like a plaster Paris mold, but when you, when you make a mold or something, you put uh, like Vaseline in between the, the plaster Paris and the thing that you're making a mold of so that once it's dried, you almost, it just pops off. The, the oil is a barrier between the, whatever you make your mold of, it's your, if it's your hand. And while we were praying, I just felt um, it's on the same lines of what Grant shared is that um, the Lord would almost pour out his abundance and his love and that would come like an oil and um, if and parts of our hearts have grown hard or stale and they like that almost like that plaster Paris that's cracked that the Lord's oil would come and it would seep in through the crack and um, it would be that oil and that unforgiveness or whatever it is would actually like just pop off and the flesh um, beneath it would be exposed and the Lord would um, refresh that in his love and it would come to life um, just in the oil of who Jesus is um, do you want me to share the scripture? Um, and there's a scripture in Psalm 18 that says, He reached down from on high and he took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Um, and even that, I just felt like it's, we can't do it in our own strength. It's the Lord's oil that has to come. And I just felt like he was um, extending his hand to us today um, to draw us out of the things that are too much for us and too overwhelming for us. And so, yeah, I just encourage you to be aware of his oil and his love just coming and um, washing over us. 
Can I ask that we close our eyes and just respond in prayer? Lord, I pray for those of us today who are struggling with unforgiveness and maybe you, Holy Spirit, are touching on that in our hearts. I I pray even now we, we could bring that up to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to forgive and let go of some of the things we've held on to for so long. I thank you, Lord, that we would experience your forgiveness and almost now you'd pour your love into our hearts and we could leave here free free from bondage, free from weight, free from bitterness, free from pain, free from fear. Set us free of some of the things that we're carrying, I pray, Lord God. I pray you would forgive us of our sin, but Lord, I pray you would help us to forgive other people too. I pray lift burdens off of people in this moment, Lord, and I pray that your kingdom would come in our hearts and would make us whole. I pray the areas of brokenness inside of us, that you would make us whole. I pray your light would shine into our lives. Your love would be poured into our hearts and that we would be transformed more and more into your image and ways. In Jesus' name, amen. I see your face in every sunrise, the colors of